right. Thank you, worship team. That was great this morning. Well, no surprises this morning. We will be back in Colossians chapter 4. And for those of you who are visiting or joining us today, that is what we do. We preach through books of the Bible, teaching the full counsel of God, and we've been going through the letter to the Christians in the church at Colossae. So this morning we reach chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. And as we do that, we are really nearing the end of the text of this letter, the main body of this letter that instructs. And from there on, we'll see the salutation and we'll get to that next week. As just a reminder, in chapter 1 all the way up through chapter 2, verse 6, what we really focused on was the supremacy of Christ, the highest Christology. Jesus Christ as the King of kings, the Lord of lords. And not just a man, but God and man. We don't follow somebody who's just a good moral teacher, somebody who's just a really good man. There'd be no point in coming to church for that. Uh, That is a sad state when people actually just worship some person. But instead, we belong to the eternal Son of God by faith in Him. And He is, as we read, the creator of all things, all things being created by and through and for Him. And most importantly for us here this morning, he is the creator of the church. It is his body over which he serves as head. The Apostle Paul prayed for the church, both in Colossae and by extension to all of us, and he prayed that we will be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And the reason was so that we would live in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, and bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. We got through all of that, and we hit chapter 2, verse 6, and that began the instruction, really, for all Christians. What does it actually mean to be saved and to live in Christ with Jesus as Lord? Because if we have truly received Jesus, if we have submitted to Him, if we've turned from our sins and believed in Him, knowing that He is the Son of God in the flesh, who came and fulfilled the law and lived in accordance with the perfect will of God, and then sacrificed himself on the cross in substitution for all those who believe in him, that he rose from the grave, that he sits at the Father's right hand. If we believe all that, then Scripture instructs us in Colossians 2 to walk or to live every single moment in Jesus, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith just as you were taught abounding in thanksgiving for who Jesus is and what God has done to save us. From there, we got to chapter 3. Chapter 3 began with some tough stuff. It's telling all Christians to set our minds continually on Jesus as we go through life. Every one of us was commanded to put to death all remaining sin in us, something we'll work on for an entire lifetime, and examples were given. But the flip side of that was equally important, more important, I would say, because you can't win the battle against sin and you can't live in the church unless you clothe yourselves with Christ. And it tells us to put on then compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, and above all things, love. It tells us to overlook each other's faults and overlook offenses and forgive constantly. A real challenge for us. But it is possible when we heed the Apostle's instruction and let the Word of Christ dwell in us richly. When we're committed to each other, to gather, to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. 
and we're committed to the teaching of the Word and growing in faith by being challenged, it says, warned, admonished by the Word of God. And then we hit that all-powerful verse that we keep coming back to, Colossians 3.17. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. And if we're honest with ourselves, if we think back over every day this week, from Sunday afternoon when church ended to where we're at this morning, and we consider every word we've spoken, every thought we've had, every action that we've taken, if that verse doesn't convict every single one of us, I don't really know what would, because I don't think anybody can live up to that standard. And so it should drive us to repentance and to worship the living Christ, because he did bleed and die to save us from our sins, and that's why we're called to be thankful. Thankful in every moment of every day. Thankful to God for saving us. Then we got to the real practical stuff. What does it look like to live for Christ? What does it look like to live for the glory of God and in submission to the Lord Jesus? And that took us to the household rules, and we went through those over the last two weeks. And now we come to the close of this section. And we close with two major themes that tie it all together and begin to shift our focus outward instead of inward. Prayer, and then our witness to an unbelieving world that we can't avoid because every minute of every day, we provide a witness to who Jesus is and who he is to us. So let's read our text, Colossians 4, verses 2 through 6. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. On, who, on, account of whom, <clears throat> on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning as always, grateful that you have given us your word, that you have made it clear to us that it is living and it is active. We pray that the Spirit would work within us, that he would indeed use it as that double-edged sword piercing through our hearts, helping us see ourselves, helping us be conformed to the image of Christ, convicting us where we need to be convicted, granting us peace. And we turn to the mercy and forgiveness of the Lord Jesus and drawing us ever closer to him as we're drawn closer to each other in his church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one of the natural tendencies in the church, and it was true in the first century and it was true today, is that we can tend to isolate ourselves from the unbelieving world. We feel pretty good within the four walls of a church. We can sit comfortably, we see false teaching, and we can identify it and talk about it and stay away from it. We can witness those who come and go, who become captive to worldly philosophies and ideologies, who get blown about by the winds of culture and depart from the faith, and we tend to stay away from them. And it's easy to see people trapped in lifestyles of sin and rebellion against Christ. And we often don't run to them, we run away from them. So we can become very inwardly focused, we can become very content. 
Uh, We can look around us and see the blessings that God pours out on his church, and that can come with people and finances and all of these things, and we can start counting those things as great success. But when we get too focused inward at the fruit of what comes from this, we can become self-righteous. Our money and time get focused on us. There's always that old saying that you can tell what a man or woman truly loves by looking at their bank account and looking at their checkbook, right? Looking at where the funds flow. And you can do the same thing in a church. You can see, are we dedicated to our comforts or are we dedicated to reaching the lost world with the message of Jesus Christ and truly drawing people in and loving them? The more inward-focused you become, either individually or as a group, the less you're actually following Jesus Christ. Because he came to do what? We know the answer to this. What did he tell the thieving tax collector Zacchaeus who came to him when all were listening? They said in Luke 19.10, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And that is really the overriding feature of our text this morning. We're not really focused anymore in this text on the Christian family, which is what we just focused on before. We're not focused on the church per se, though there's things the church must do. But we're focused on how we pray, how we speak, how we live our lives to fulfill the mission of the church. Not only just to gather to worship Jesus, that is first and foremost the priority for all Christians, to keep him preeminent in our lives, to gather together and worship him, but the mission must be to reach the lost. If we believe what we say we believe, then we are surrounded by people who will spend an eternity in the torment of hell for rejecting Christ. We're called to reach the lost, and that must start with prayer. So we're going to cover this text under five headings. You have them in your outline. Prayer for self, prayer for ministry, our living display, every moment counts, and we must speak. So talk the walk. So let's begin with prayer. Verse 2, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Now continue steadfastly. We don't use the word steadfastly, and I've never heard, actually, I'm sure I've never heard anybody use that except in Christian circles. As some of you will see in your translations, devote yourselves to prayer. It means the same thing. What this is getting at is that prayer must be a regular part of every Christian's life. Continue steadfastly isn't really talking about how urgently we pray. There are times, for sure, when our prayers are going to be more intense, and they're going to be more focused, and they're going to be more rigorous than at other times. Because as Christians, we are not immune from the sufferings of this world. Our family members will get sick. They will die. We have all of the same tragedies in a world corrupted by sin. So there are for sure times when we are going to pray with great passion. Many times that is for the salvation of our very own families. But this verse actually has nothing to do with the intensity of our prayers to God. It has everything to do with our mindset And our habits, you can think back to how Colossians began in chapter 3 by keeping our minds focused on God. What this is getting at is that living for Christ is a life of habitual and continuous prayer. It is a life of habitual and continuous prayer. You see this throughout the New Testament, right? Pray without ceasing. You see that in 1 Thessalonians. Be constant in prayer, Romans 12. Pray at all times, Ephesians 6. And we can go on and on with all of these texts. But they all point to one thing. 
which is that prayer is characteristic of the follower of Jesus because it reflects that we think of him first. We're seeking to do his will. We recognize that he is the vine and that we are the branches. And as scripture says, apart from him, we can do nothing that is actually pleasing to God or edifying to his church and to the mission of the church of reaching others. I love the story of Nehemiah, which gives us, I think, the best illustration of continuous prayer. Nehemiah, we know, was living in exile. God had executed judgment on the Israelites because of their unfaithfulness. And Nehemiah was the cupbearer for King Artaxerxes. And so Nehemiah appears before the king, engages in discussion as they usually do. The king notices that he looks sad, and that is very unusual. And it actually brings a risk in that world to being killed. The king wanted to know, what is wrong with Nehemiah? What is your request? We know from the story that Nehemiah wanted to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the city's walls, to bring glory to God. And so we read this when the king asks him. This is Nehemiah 2. So I prayed to the God of heaven and I said. That is just an amazing little thing dropped in there. It's a quick prayer. It's obviously a silent prayer. He's in the middle of a conversation with King Artaxerxes. But it is a prayer that acknowledged in that quick moment that he needed the wisdom, he needed the guidance, he needed the protection from God, and he needed the boldness and courage to speak to the king to go and do God's will. It is such a great lesson to us about what it means to be thinking of Christ, to be praying continuously, and a reminder that we must do the same before we act, before we respond to what's going on in life. Continuous, steadfast prayer, praying without ceasing, devotion to prayer, it all means that your mind is set on things above, on Christ. And prayer then becomes this habitual, continuous feature of your existence. What about collectively? Do we pray when we come into groups? You can look at the early church. It was devoted to prayer. After the ascension of Jesus Christ in Acts 1, we read that the 120 disciples, the earliest gathering of the church, met in the upper room, and they were devoted with one mind, one accord, to prayer calling out to God. As the church was established, the earliest church did the same thing. You can see this in Acts 2.42. What did the earliest church dedicate themselves to? To the teachings of Scripture, to gathering together for worship and fellowship, and they were devoted to prayer. It is within the prayerless church that the enemy does his greatest work. It destroys the unity within the church, spurs on divisiveness, Rebellion against any type of authority. The focus becomes pragmatism. God's word says this, but you know, there's a better way that we can come up with. We have to be connected to God in prayer. Our natural tendency, our focus quickly becomes us, right? Focus on me, not Christ. And when that happens, we lose a sense of what his calling is. To live holy. To reach those who need the gospel. A prayer is individual, it is collective, it's commanded by God, but we must not lose sight of the fact that it is a privilege. There's actually nothing that we do that makes God have to listen to his creation. It is a privilege and it is a joy given to followers of Jesus Christ to be able to pray and rest in the promise that God hears our prayers and answers our prayers. 
And that's the very reason why we're reigniting prayer meetings next Sunday evening, because the church needs to come together, and the Bible is clear and gives us instructions about how to pray, to honor Christ, to reach the world. Now, the fact that it uses that funny word, steadfast, right? The steadfastness of our prayers, it does point to the perseverance with which we pray. Jesus gave several parables on this, parables with the express purpose of instructing us as his followers that we should always be praying and praying and praying and never give up. In Luke 18, we know the parable well. It's the persistent widow, right? She's calling out, making her request repeatedly to this unjust, arrogant, unbelieving judge. That's more or less the way he's described there. And eventually he gives in. The message is clear, never give up, trust in Christ, keep praying and praying and praying. But also don't lose sight that there's some tension here. There is a flip side that we can't ignore. We have to submit our will to God's will. It's not just praying for things that we want in life. Sometimes the answer we get back is not the answer we want. The Apostle Paul prayed three times to Jesus, please remove this thorn in my side. And God said, no, it is in your weakness that my strength will be shown. And so he was submitted to that. So we do need to be submissive and gracious when God does clearly answer our prayers, even when those answers are opposite of what we want. So it's that balance. We have to be persistent in prayer, but that prayer needs to be in accordance with his will. So we must ground ourselves in Scripture, in the teaching. We must seek the counsel of other faithful Christians who are also dedicated to prayer and the preaching and teaching and reading of the Word. Because what we'll find is that God's will is not complicated. He he has revealed this to us. Among other things, His will is that our knowledge and our faith in Him would increase. That the lost will be saved. That they will be reached with the saving message of Jesus Christ. That our lives as disciples of Jesus would be conformed to the image of Jesus over time. And that our witness would be bold and would be faithful to his word. That we would speak in truth. That we would confess to him our sins and trust in his mercy. And the fact that he is just and always faithful to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. His will is not complicated. It's there and laid out for us. There are two further instructions in our prayers in this verse. The first one is we must be watchful in our prayer. We must be watchful. You can think back to that night of Jesus' warning in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night that he went and prayed. And he said to the disciples, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. That's an interesting prayer. But it's so powerful because nothing kills your fellowship with Jesus Christ and your witness to the world like engaging in sin and capitulating in weakness and beginning to make compromises to his word and approving sin for the glory that you get from man instead of God. So you must be watchful over yourself. We're called to be watchful over our own life in the light of the fact that we are ambassadors for Jesus Christ, God making his appeal through us, right? 2 Corinthians And we're warned that to those whom much is given, much will be required. And we are all those to whom much is given. We have God's word. We're sitting under it now. We're told each of us will give an account of himself to God in Romans 14. 
We must be watchful over ourselves. Be watchful, we're told, because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So all believers are called in their prayers to be alert, to be awake to the times that we live in, to be aware of the nature of the temptations that attack us, right? And that's going to be different for every single person. But the thing that's not different is the threats to his church. And that we can see and be watchful for and pray about. Don't lose sight of something else that you must be watchful over. You must be watchful over the specific needs that you see around you. You see, we will never pray continuously and steadfastly for something or someone that we have very little concern about. We have to be watchful in our church, in our community, because we only tend to pray diligently, fervently to God with specific prayer requests when we are very aware of the spiritual and physical needs of those around us. We need to know those. We need to be watchful of them. We need to pray. Uh, William Hendrickson wrote this, summarizing this. He said, while continuing in prayer, the worship, worshiper shall be alive, or watchful to such matters as his own needs, those of the family, the church, the country, and the world. Also, the dangers that threaten the Christian community. And last, but certainly not least, the very will of God. So we must be watchful, we must be persistent in our prayer, and lastly, he says here, we must do this all with thanksgiving. And every time I hit this in Colossians, this theme of thanksgiving, it strikes me. If you were writing a letter to a church trying to teach them how to pray while you sat in prison, chained to a guard, dictating or writing this letter, it seems that thanksgiving would be probably the last thing, at least in my mind, that would come to my mind in that moment. And you see something about this in the Apostle Paul. He was very aware as you go throughout the rest of his letters of who he is, what Jesus did to save him. And so we're given this snapshot, only reminding ourselves daily of who we actually are, where we would be without Jesus Christ. That is what will keep us thankful in our prayers. It'll keep us thankful when we're treated poorly. It'll keep us thankful when people speak maliciously about you. In fact, Jesus says rejoice when that happens. It'll keep you thankful when you're hurt, when you're sick, when your family is struggling, when you've lost a job. Not thankful for those things. We're real people. Those are real pains. But always thankful for the everlasting privilege of knowing Jesus and being known by him, being cared for by God, being called into a family of believers and offered the privilege of serving with him side by side. And serving together side by side in the church. Being thankful as the Apostle Peter writes, when the times are tough, insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you can rejoice and be glad in that day when his glory is revealed. Thankfulness has indeed been a theme throughout Colossians. And let me just rattle off a few for you. In Colossians 1, we read that we're to be thankful first that God saved us. That he reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ, the Son of God in the flesh. That we are to be thankful for spiritual growth through the word of God read and preached and taught. That's Colossians 2, 7. To be thankful uh, to be called to worship together on the Lord's day. That is a privilege. Many today will ignore that. They'll say things like, I love Jesus or my heart is for fill in the blank. But they cannot give Jesus Christ 
a couple hours of their morning to worship him. I've been, I, you guys know that I have to write for the paper, and I don't think I'll write this, but I keep thinking of the title of my next piece being, You Can Have Me When I'm Dead, right? I said a prayer at one point, I can't give you the worship you deserve, but you can have me when I'm dead, and then I'll join the saints in worship for eternity. So we're to be thankful that we're called to worship together on the Lord's Day in fellowship with the believers, Colossians 3.15, and thankful for every breath. Every breath is a gift from God, and the opportunity to use our words and deeds to serve the living Christ. That's Colossians 3.17. But really, we must be thankful most of all that we're forgiven daily, moment by moment, as we confess our sins to a faithful and just and merciful God and that we're not dependent on ourselves for salvation. God forbid, none of us would make it. But that indeed, we are saved freely by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And if Paul could be thankful while in chains, we can be thankful for the promise of God, right? That for those who love God, All things work together for good. That good, as we know, is to be conformed to the image of Christ and live among the world as his ambassadors. Now, a big focus of our prayer isn't just ourselves. Most of us can pray for things that we want for ourselves forever. But it's actually interceding for others. And so, Paul moves on to prayer for the ministry, specifically, verses 3 and 4. He says, at the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door. For the word, to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought, which I, is how I must speak. That's interesting. He asks for something very specific from the church to pray for. He wants them to pray for Paul, for sure, for Timothy, for Epaphras, who shared the gospel with the church, possibly the other men that are coming up in the lengthy list in the rest of chapter 4. But what you should see here, and you see this in almost all of Paul's letters, is that every believer, every believer, even one as spiritually mature as Paul, even one who is called as an apostle, which we don't have today, but as Paul was, he needs prayer. It's really quite amazing, right? He needs prayer. Because the world hates Christ. The world hates the church. Jesus says that the world hates his followers. And so you see that repeatedly with the apostles. Peter and John, after they were arrested and after they were told and threatened not to go preach, what did they do? They gathered with the church and they prayed. And they said, it's Acts 4.29, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Everyone needs prayer. But those who are called need prayer. How often in our prayers do we make very specific petitions to God on behalf of our pastors, our missionaries, are the evangelists out there, others that are engaged in all types of ministries? I bring that up because I know it's something that I neglected very much so in my early years. It never occurred to me, right? These are, these are people teaching me. Why would I pray for them? And yet it's a consistent request and a consistent command throughout Scripture. And here, Paul's very specific. There's many reasons why you might pray for a missionary. But here, it's specific. Paul's writing. He's in Rome, house arrest, physically chained to a guard when he writes this letter. And the one thing he does not ask for is for his freedom. That strikes me because I know what I would ask for. 
pray that I would get out of these chains so I can actually go do the work of God in my head, what I decide the work of God is for me. But that's not what Paul asked him to pray for, right? His faith is so strong. His confidence in the sovereignty of God, the providence of God, is so strong that he's focused on the most important thing. Pray that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. He knows that it is God who closes doors and God who opens doors for the proclamation of the gospel and opens hearts. You see this really in looking at Paul's missionary journeys. There was a time in Acts chapter 16 where Paul wanted to go into Asia to preach the gospel. And Asia is different than what we think of Asia as today. Asia is Ephesus. Asia is, is cities like Troas and Smyrna, the cities that you see in the churches in Revelation. And we read that God closed the door to Paul. He could not go into Asia. And we don't know why. Scripture doesn't tell us why. But what you do see is in his third missionary journey, he spends years in Asia. God opened the door, such that you read in Acts chapter 19 that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So everyone. So Paul understood this, and he prayed specifically, and he asked for prayer specifically. And we can do that. When we realize that it is God alone who paves the way for sharing the promising and convicting truth of his word. And it is the word that Paul is focused on here, right? It is the word that must be shared. Salvation is not hinging on finding the right person with the right looks and the right skills to go and make the word of God palatable or acceptable to somebody. It's not all hinging on if you can just get the charismatic leader who everybody loves, who dresses the right way. That's not what it's hinging on. Certainly not on neat ways of packaging God's word to people by making compromises so that it's acceptable to the unbelieving word. No, Paul recognizes what he wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that it is the gospel that is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The gospel is. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed. You go back to Colossians 1.6, you will note that what Paul gives credit to is not his ministry, not Epaphras' ministry, but he rightly notes that it is the word of God that is bearing fruit in the church and in the world. But God uses means, so men and women must proclaim that. The parallel passage in Ephesians makes the same request of the church in Ephesus. It says in Ephesians 6, 19 and 20, Pray that, the, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So, how should we pray? We should pray that the minister of the gospel, whoever is filling those roles, would have an open door to speak the word of God. That the opportunity would present itself and that hearts and minds would be open and receptive. But also that it would be proclaimed boldly, without compromise. And, and this is an important part, because every audience is different, one-on-one -on -one or in groups, that it could be spoken clearly. Right, the vocabulary you use in one setting is going to be very different than another setting. The word of God must be proclaimed truthfully and without compromise, but in a way that people can understand clearly. Was the prayer answered? What do you think? 
This is one of those times where Scripture actually does point to us and show us that this prayer that he asked for the church in Ephesus and the church in Colossae was indeed answered. And we see that in his letter to the Philippians. In Philippians 1, he writes, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Because he didn't need to be free. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard, Caesar's guard, and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident to the Lord (coughs) by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. And then you jump to the close of that very letter, Philippians 4.22, and he says in his salutation, all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Saints are believers. Imagine, I mean, it must have been torturous for the unbeliever to be chained to the Apostle Paul for 12 hours, right? I mean, but that's how God used him to reach those in Caesar's own household and members of the Imperial Guard. God had a reason for Paul to be in chains. He didn't know why. We don't know why we're where we're at. But we know what we're called to do, and we can pray that the doors would be opened. Because all of this actually just hinged on Paul's faithfulness, his trust in Jesus Christ, his desire to witness the glory of Jesus Christ more than he trusted in anything else and more than he desired his own comfort or power or freedom or success because he knew all those things will pass away with this life, but the glory of Jesus Christ is forever. Now he is a great example, right? Nobody's a better example for Christians than the Apostle Paul if we could all walk like he walked. But he now turns in these last two verses to encourage all Christians. All Christians to evangelism. It is not just a calling for those who go off on the mission field or those who serve the church in various ways. But it is for everyone. In verse 5 he says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders. We know from before that walk is just a term meaning live, right? It must be, your life must be lived in wisdom moment by moment. Because unbelievers are watching what you do. You can start with really kind of asking yourself uh, kind of the negative observation of what happens. You know one of the biggest, it's a false criticism, but it's a criticism nonetheless that people love to talk about, which is the hypocrisy of the church, right? What's a hypocrite? I think everybody knows. A hypocrite is just someone who claims one thing, professes something usually with their mouth, and does something completely different. Right? Lives, lives like a Christian for an hour and a half on Sunday morning and lives like a, a pagan for six and a half days the rest of the week. That, that's kind of what you think of as a hypocrite. And we live actually in a world full of hypocrites, not just in the church, but the whole world is full of them. But we're not called to be like them. Jesus despised that sort of thing. That's what the Pharisees were frequently chastised for. You say you're religious, you do all these things, you have no heart for God, you've lost your way. You're a hypocrite. But it's easy to fall into that trap, and we shouldn't be pointing at others because it is extraordinarily easy to fall into that trap. If you look at surveys, and I double-checked this this morning, 60 to 70% of Americans claim to be Christian. We know that that's false. If you think that you actually, as an evangelical Christian, are in the majority of the population in the United States, maybe it's shocking, but you are not. If you believe the Bible is true, you're talking about 6 to 9% of the population, not 70% of the population. But that's what leads to this accusation of hypocrisy all the time, this false identity 
with Christ. The people who make this claim, but outside of church, if they even go to church, their lives are actually no different than everyone else's, than the very person who rejects Christ. And sometimes you think, oh, then, then everybody's wicked and evil. No, that's not what I mean. They're nice people. There are people all around us this way. Extraordinarily nice people, fun people to be around, but not saved people. And that's our challenge, because that's who we're engaging with every day. And so we must be very careful that we are not hypocrites. Scripture calls us to live for Christ, to worship together on Sunday morning, because there is nothing more important, and that sends a signal to the world. What is most important in your life? Is it worshiping the God who saved you, or is it something else? And then we're told to live every single moment, to walk, right? To live in wisdom with outsiders. Because here's the reality. Many people, I would say most people, will never actually read a Bible. They'll never actually sit and listen to a full sermon that is preached kind of an expository style from the Word of God. They might listen to motivational talks or 15-minute sermonettes, but they'll never actually sit and listen to a full sermon. They won't read the Bible, they won't be taught, but what they will do and what everybody does do is they will see your life and my life, they will hear your words and my words, and they are going to form their judgment of Jesus Christ and the faith that is once for all delivered to the saints on that basis on your life. They will use your behavior and your words as their window to see who God really is. See what he really says and to see what these Christians are actually all about. Does he really save? Does he transform lives? Does he serve as the Lord of your life? Or is it just an add-on, something that you say but don't do? One author puts it, he said, unsaved men watch and listen. We know that's true. Unsaved men watch and listen, therefore a Christian must be consistent in what he does and what he says. Lest he be called a hypocrite, there must be a holy balance between life and lip, right? What you say and what you do. Everything about our lives is meant to point to the Lord and the Savior who we serve. What does it mean to walk in wisdom? Wisdom, we kind of use that word to mean smart or knowledge. Wisdom is in a very expansive concept biblically, but you could summarize it really with kind of two statements. Broadly speaking, we can say that wisdom begins with the reverence, the awe, the worship of God Almighty. And it ends with your love of Jesus Christ above all things. You can book in this with the scripture, Proverbs 9.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Then you can jump to Colossians 2.3, which says, In the Lord Jesus Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So believers exhibit wisdom in their life when they make godly decisions on how to behave and how to act. Decisions made in accordance with the word of God, fueled by prayer, often informed by the wise counsel of other Christians in their life, faithful men and women who are also dedicated to prayer. And that develops a consistency in behavior in the world, showing this righteousness, this obedience to Christ, and people should see that you're different. God calls all of us to be holy for he is holy, and that command covers all of life, and it ultimately takes you full circle. It makes you jump back to Colossians 3, which tells you what to put on, and 
we read a bit about that. What does a Christian look like? But it ultimately means considering everything that Christ calls you to in Scripture. As a parent, as a husband, as a wife, as a friend, as a colleague, as an employee, as an employer, everything. Now, sometimes it's a little easier if you just consider what happens when the opposite is true. The letter of James, which is often considered the wisdom literature of the New Testament, uh, it sort of gives us these rapid-fire, back-to-back, what happens, right? What, what are the fruits of living a life that is fueled by emotions and what we think is right versus the fruit of following Jesus Christ in his word, being humbly submitted to God? In James 3, 16 and 17, it Sort of lays these out. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder. We know that that's true. That's why it's called wisdom literature. It points to something that even the non-Christian can see. When self-interest is above everything, when jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder. People will be fighting tooth and nail with each other. And every vile practice will come from that. But the wisdom from above, I'm going to read this slow because this should characterize us. And it's tough. It's first pure. And then it's peaceable. It's gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. That's what people should describe us as, whether they see us interacting with each other in the church or whether they're interacting with us in the store or anywhere else. Because to live with wisdom requires that we put God above everything else. We put him above ourselves every time and all the time. It means, really, that we have to heed the call to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. Because when you profess to be saved by your faith in the perfect life of the God-man Jesus, by his atoning death on the cross, whether you like it or not, your life becomes a walking and living advertisement to the world of who Jesus is. That's what you represent. And it's an advertisement we'll all answer for one day, because Jesus said, not just our deeds, but On the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. Now, we're going to come back to that. We have to see that every moment counts. It's a quick little detour. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of time. We're not going to dwell on this point. It's pretty self-explanatory. The clock, they say, is no respecter of persons, right? Minutes tick by just the same way for the wise and the foolish, for the believer and the unbeliever, and we all march on the same series of time toward the day when we will give an account before the Holy and Righteous One. So we must make the best use of time. What that really should tell you is, if you really believe what you say you believe, that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through Him, which means anyone not standing in Christ is destined for eternal hell. If you believe that, and we all say that we do, it should guide our actions and our lives and what we speak because we want that for no man, no woman, no child. How could we allow our neighbor, our friend, our relative, anyone to pass on to eternal damnation hearing nothing from us? That should never be the case. It's sort of addressed in that old story, Pilgrim's Progress, that John Bunyan wrote. And it's the one part of that book that just makes me cringe when there's this conversation with Christian, the main character, asking him, didn't you tell your wife? Didn't you tell your children? You can't make somebody believe. But to go silently by and approving them, 
their lives without ever speaking the word of Christ. It's a scary thing. Ephesians 5, again, the parallel text says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of time because the days are evil. And the days are. They are very dark, but God is light. You might remember the Christmas Eve sermon. God is light and Christ is light and his people are called to be light to the world that points to Jesus. But this is really an active expression here. It is telling us that we're not to just wait around, right? That's our natural tendency. Well, you know, I'll speak if God gives me the opportunity, if things, you know, everything sort of goes, if, it, if the cloud goes the right way, then I'll have enough guts to do this. No, it didn't. We, no, this is saying grab onto time. Purchase time. Redeem time. Be active in getting a hold of it. Don't let it be wasted. Make it useful for witnessing through your life and through your words the saving gospel of Jesus. But it does require talking. This is our last point, verse 6. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. It's a tough one to end on. I actually think that this is the hardest. It is the most difficult. It is often the most condemning thing for us. The tongue, the Bible tells us, and all of us know from our own experience, is the most difficult member of our bodies to control. It seems to always be fueled by passions and emotions, and even in the best of us, we can get caught up and we can lash out and we can say things that we regret and we can use tones that we don't mean, and it seems almost impossible. James, chapter 3, notes that so also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. In verse 10, it says, from the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. The same mouth, blessing and cursing. It's such a powerful warning because you can unravel all of the good things that you do in life by what you say. You can absolutely wipe out your witness for Christ by how you speak. You can destroy people's trust in you. Within the household, you can crush your children, you can belittle your spouse by how you choose your words and how you talk. You can destroy relationships between other people by engaging in gossip and slander. You can sow disunity in the church or you can bring people together. It is just such a dangerous little thing that we have. And I can't emphasize enough how careful we need to be as Christians with our speech what we say, how we express it. Because emotions and passions and the things we care about, they can cause us to speak in ways that we should regret. Sometimes pride gets in the way and we don't, but we should. You can see this when you watch two people arguing a point. You can often see kind of the venom that starts coming out in these things. And yet we must always take a step back. Because we are filled with the Holy Spirit and the fruit of the Holy Spirit we know is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control. And that should actually be what's coming out. That's what should be shown in our words. 
especially when we're dealing with brothers and sisters in Christ, because we're told by Jesus himself the world will know us by our love for one another. So they should see that in our words, but especially, as this text shows, to unbelievers and around unbelievers. Jesus warned that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So what we say and how we say it is not easily discounted. It is either coming from the good treasure of Jesus Christ that we hold in high regard internally, or it is springing up from our naturally wicked human nature. And it's why Jesus concludes that section by saying, your word, by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. It's not the words themselves, but they reflect who we love and who we serve. So all Christians need to really work at this. We all do. To choose words that reflect the Lord we serve and how he interacted with people. The text says our speech must be gracious. It must be filled with grace. The world rejected Jesus when he walked among them. They shouted out to crucify him, right? But even in Luke, we read this observation. It says that all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. How he interacted with an unbelieving world, even those who rejected him was reflected in the grace with which he spoke. Gracious speech is never vindictive. It's not abusive. Rather, it models Jesus, who, First Peter says, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, because he kept trusting himself to the God the Father who judges justly. And he knew, as Romans tells us, it's not up to us to avenge ourselves. Leave that to God. We proclaim the gospel. Ephesians 5.29, again, kind of the parallel text says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Now, we know in Corinthians it tells us to examine ourselves to see if we're in the faith. We, you read farther in Ephesians, it says to examine yourself. So, again, on this particular text, be your own judge, right? Examine yourself as Scripture calls you to do. This is a tough one, I think. You can just think back, within the church or outside over the past week, was your speech limited to those things that built up those around you? Did it give grace to those who could hear you, those overhearing you and your conversation with others? Because your fellowship with Christ and your witness for Him is going to flourish only as much as you can control your tongue. And it is hard. I think we all know that this is hard. We talk about a lot of sins. We don't often talk about this, but this, I think, is one of the hardest ones. Because unless someone is a perfect saint or is too arrogant to admit fault, I think it's safe to say that every single one of us has said words that fall way short of this standard. And words that we have either had to apologize for or that we should apologize for. And I know that that's true because the Word of God is true. And James 3.2 says, If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man. But there's only one perfect man, the God-man, Jesus Christ. So this is to all of us. If we ever think there's nothing we've ever said that we need to step back and maybe apologize for, then we need to examine ourselves because Scripture says otherwise. You will fall short of this standard. So it is a constant work. I struggle. I know everybody struggles with this, so you have to work at it, pray about it. And one author summarizes a lot of Scripture by saying this, and we'll move off this. This is an easier way than spending a couple hours reading a whole bunch of Bible verses to you. He says to speak with grace, 
means to say what is spiritual, wholesome, fitting, kind, sensitive, purposeful, complementary, gentle, truthful, loving, and thoughtful. Spiritual, wholesome, fitting, kind, sensitive, purposeful, complementary, gentle, truthful, loving, and thoughtful. Know if we could do that, wouldn't life be great? Our speech must also be seasoned with salt. We have to engage meaningfully with our words. Salt prevents corruption. It was used for that purpose then. That kind of ties back to the verse that we read out of Ephesians, let no corrupt talk come out of your mouth. But this is really pointing us in a different direction. Salt flavors food. If you had no salt, you would find all food very bland. It makes it come alive to your taste buds. But you also know, don't you, that too much salt put on food means you can't eat it. It's awful. When you think about this with speech, I kind of was thinking this morning about two spectrums. Think of examples in your life where somebody exhibits this salt, is, is able to speak winsomely, engagingly about the gospel, to, to work it in, to ask questions. That's one side. That's the salt. You can also think about the guy with the billboard screaming through a megaphone that everyone's going to hell. He's right. But that's too salty. Nobody's listening, right? They just keep walking on by. You have to speak with salt. Our speech should attract people to Jesus. It should attract people to his church. It should be thought-provoking. It shouldn't be empty. We're told in 2 Timothy, avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. We don't want to be doing that. Instead, our talk should be distinctive because the wisdom of Christ, the fruit of the Holy Spirit, is evident in our words and out of our mouths should flow our devotion to the living Christ who gave his very life to save us, who was raised from the grave, who we will join one day. And if you practice this at all times, this isn't going to be a challenge because your life and your speech are going to model who you serve and it will say we will then know how we ought to answer each person. Or in the words of Peter, we'll be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason, that a, that a reason for the hope that is in you. Because that hope is Jesus Christ. He's our blessed hope. The hope is a person. Both God and man, the living Christ who lived and died for us. Who calls all people to repent from their sin and believe in him for forgiveness of sins and eternal life. And who by the work of the Holy Spirit in us transforms our hearts. Renews our minds by the word such that we will walk with Jesus as we witness his saving grace to the lost world. Have you turned to him? You submit your life to him? His mercy is available to everyone every day. And that is a great thing because we need his mercy every moment of every day. But scripture promises everyone who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. And if you are, and we are called to live for him, to worship him, and to witness him to the world. Let's pray. Lord, so much is packed into so few words in Scripture that shouldn't, that shouldn't amaze us. For we read of the very mind of God at our level given to us in words that we can understand, words that we can comprehend, instructions that we can apply. 
Lord, we pray that you would work within each one of us, that you would draw us to a healthy prayer life, that we would keep our minds set on Christ above, that we would walk in a manner worthy and pleasing of the Lord who we proclaim with every word we speak and every action we take. Lord, we know we fall short each and every day. We are thankful that you have promised to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from unrighteousness, to never leave us or forsake us, never let us out of your hand, but to keep us to the very end. Father, please give us strength and boldness to speak your word. Keep us from unintentional mistakes and certainly keep us from intentionally twisting or bending or ignoring your precious word. We pray for the community around us, those we come into contact with this week. Lord, let them see the reason for the hope that is in us. Give us opportunity to proclaim your word. We pray that the doors would be opened. We might see a great move of repentance and faith, revival. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.